0: Hello and welcome to episode number one hundred and fifteen of the Agro Innovations podcast. All things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been released onto our website agroinnovations.com/podcast on Monday, December twenty seventh, two thousand ten. Today on the Agro Innovations podcast, we are joined by Daniel Imhoff. Daniel is the editor of a book called CAFO. Concentrated Animal Feeding Operations The Tragedy of Industrial Animal Factories. Daniel Imhoff, welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Well, I have in my hands a big, beautiful book with many photos and text written by all sorts of different people who are involved in food activism in one way or another. And you edited this book. Um, what can you tell me about how this book was actually put together, Daniel Imhoff?
1: Well, KFO is actually the last or the most uh, recent in a long series of books put out by a foundation called the Foundation for Deep Ecology. And it, these, these books really deal with how um, the impacts uh, social, environmental, cultural, health, uh, Etc. Of industrial economic models um, with with the land, and so they've tackled anything from clear-cut forestry to conventional industrial crop and and orchard agriculture to um, arid lands grazing, and um, most recently mo- mountaintop removal coal mining. And these books really have this feature of Um, photo essays, large-scale photos that really tell, you know, a thousand words in in a picture, uh, combined with numerous essays that really give you uh, a a behind-the-scenes look at uh, at a subject that you might not normally get.
0: Okay, well, I thought that the way that we could proceed with this interview, because I have this book with me, is that we can go through some of these, as you said, pictures say thousands of words, and uh, I'd like to ask you about some of these pictures and what they mean, Um, and I'd also like to ask you about some of the fundamental points that this book is trying to convey to its readers. So one of the things, the most striking things, I think, when you first open this book is the photographs in the first several pages, and what I am seeing are pigs confined in what looks like warehouses, Uh, machinery is everywhere, very straight-lined kind of geometry, very industrial-looking. And, of course, one of the most prominent things that jumps out at you is just how many animals are in such a small space. And this isn't just the pigs, it's the hens and the cattle and all the other animals uh, that we usually associate with the grocery store. So um, what can you tell me about these photos, and why did you decide to include them uh, on the first pages of this book?
1: Well, you know, you only have so much time, really, to um, grab somebody's attention, especially with a subject like um, industrial animal food production. I think there are a lot of people out there who, (coughs) excuse me, they, they, for better or for worse, they... They really just don't want to know. and they'd rather not really find out and be able to enjoy their meal without knowing you know exactly how it was produced. and um, the the um, operators who who run these huge animal factories really like it that way. They work really hard to make sure that you know they they have some they're hiding behind this facade of you know, the small family farmer who really takes care of his animals and, and, you know, with pigs rolling in the mud and and roosters crowing from the fence posts and cows out there eating grass as as they're naturally accustomed to. And, um, you know, we we wanted to start this book with uh, just um, a very uh, powerful photo essay that really tells a different story of the way an increasing majority of of animal food products are are raised and processed <clears throat> and as you can see it's a it's a grim it's a very grim story now the important thing that you have to know about the the photographs is we we started with 6,000 and for this book we ended up with 450 and you might think that really our main source of photographs were from you know vegan vegetarian Um, sustainable agricultural espionage uh, photographers and and really you know it's very hard to get access to these facilities and a big majority of the photos that we actually ended up using we purchased from Associated Press and from Reuters and from um, other photo agencies that actually had access to these operations so as bad as they look you have to realize that these are many of the operations that they chose to allow photographers to come into to see. And, and, and you might have seen some of these photos actually in the newspaper over the years.
0: I personally react very strongly emotionally to these photos, and I don't think I'm unique in doing so. Uh, I think that anyone that looks at these photos um, will feel compassion and pity for these animals what is the emotional response of people as, they, as you expose them to these photos? And I would imagine many times people are not aware of what's actually happening. This may be the first time they're being exposed to something like this.
1: Yeah, you know, it's, it's a real wide range. I, I've had activists tell me, you know, look at the book and say, oh, that's not as nearly as bad as it really is. Um, you know, you've chosen the nice, bright, shiny, squeaky clean photos. Um, and then, you know, I just heard this morning from somebody who said um, his teenage niece looked at the book and then read it twice, cover to cover, read through it, and now is just completely um, committed to finding out more about the food that she eats and, and how important it is. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a staggering uh, collection of images and um, you know there's a cumulative uh, heaviness weight to it and I think the, the only way that you can really respond I, I think um, is to say that if this is going on then uh, it has to stop we can certainly do better uh, on just about every level
0: well, we can do better, and I'm so glad that you said that uh, this early on in the interview. Um, let's talk about some of the chapters that you have in the second part of the book. And the, the part two of the book is called Myths of the CAFO. Can you talk about some of these myths uh, briefly and maybe summarize what this tells us about uh, uh, CAFOs?
1: Well, you know, I think we're trying to react to, <coughs> uh, to a lot of the spin that's out there right now um, and has been really building for some time. Um, I think you know, the main one that is most important and, and most critical really um, is that the myth that the only way that we can really feed ourselves today with you know, the number of people, um, growing appetites, the kind of society that we have is with factory farming. Factory farming of crops and and then by turning animals really into you know economic units of, of industrial design and and that really it's you know it 's a shame, but you know they're treated well and and we should all be happy because our food is so cheap right and you know you can still go out and you can still get a ridiculous amount of um, you know, chicken nuggets or uh, a double cheeseburger with bacon or four cheese pizza. And we spend less than, you know, almost any other developed society on food as a percentage of our income and that this is a good thing. Uh, it's, it's you know, it's not, it's not bad for the environment. It's not bad for our health. And we should be happy, you know, and, and Really, quite satisfied with the food system that we have because even though you know every once in a while you hear about 500 million eggs being recalled, it's safe. And so you know the the myth section is really there to, in in a concise way, refute these ideas that it's cheap. Of course, it's not cheap. You know we put billions of dollars of subsidies um, into the feed and into the um, manure handling of these massive corporate agribusinesses. Um, but even, even more, the only way that, that you can possibly view this food as cheap is if you cook the books and, and you omit these serious costs that are being externalized, that are being foisted onto society, um, massive amounts of waste that, that um, have nowhere to go but eventually into the water system and into the air and onto the land. Um, huge amounts of, of antibiotic drugs that, you know, just given every day in very small doses to animals poses real genuine health threats. And, um, you know, over the last 50 years, the total gutting of of rural America of Of an America that was once really based on um, lots more independent family farmers serving regional food systems and and that's been completely replaced by by a corporate structure um, that I think we should all be um, pretty wary of.
0: Well, it is also um, very interesting that. The third part of your book talks about being inside the CAFO, and you actually go through uh, many of these different production models from cows to pigs to chickens uh, and describe actually what's going on in terms of the, well, the factory farming involved in these CAFO operations. Can you tell us about uh, some of the key characteristics of life and business inside the CAFO?
1: Sure. Um, you know, I mean, it's a it's an extremely um, unnatural environment for the, for for animals. Um, you know, they're uh, <coughs> regardless of of the species really anymore, cows, um, turkeys, chickens, um, maybe with the exception of, of beef cattle, but hogs you find that um, only a very, very narrow few breeds are now chosen, and they've been really um, bred, industrial bred, industrially bred over many decades now to maximize the output of eggs or meat um, or, or, or milk. Um, and they, they really live quite an artificial existence when you go back to this idea of the Concentrated Animal Feeding Operation, which is an EPA term, CAFO. A CAFO's model is basically you cram as many animals as possible into the smallest space and you have them grow as quickly as possible at the least cost. And you find that the the numbers now of animals that they're cramming into these facilities is just Staggering. You know, the, the, the beef cattle, which supposedly have the best life of all because they spend, you know, the first half or more of their life out on pastures, then they come to the feedlot. I mean, it's, it's not uncommon anymore for 100,000 cows to be housed on a feedlot at any one time. It's not uncommon to have hundreds of thousands of laying hens inside these huge facilities where they're crammed six to a cage where, you know, they, they don't have any way to naturally socialize as as species. They, ha- they they have no way to really enact their natural behaviors. You know, there's a lot of seeking going on and exploration and play and and um and, uh, in in the average um, semi-wild animal, you know, a farm animal. If you look at a chicken, just during the day, it's scratching, it's bathing, it's, it's interacting with others, it's eating a very diverse diet. Well, once they hit the CAFO, they're basically on the industrial program. They're fed, you know, a highly um, <coughs> a highly industrial uh, ration, scientific formula to, to raise protein. Um, oftentimes, you know, mutilation is common in these animals, um, and that could be having their be- beaks cut off so that, you know, chickens don't peck each other to death because they're bored out of their minds with nothing else to do except, you know, be in a, in a, uh, in a cage um, in very close quarters with a few other animals. Uh, in the case of hogs, often their tails are docked, cut off, so that they don't gnaw at each other, but so that they'll also, they have such sensitive backsides, they'll also do anything they can to be gnawed upon. Um, And the list goes on and on. Um, You know, from, really, from birth, which is oftentimes by, you know, uh, artificial insemination, to death, these creatures are are really just stuck in, in filthy, crammed, unnatural conditions and they're, they're packed full of protein um, to basically fill the protein pipeline that we've all become accustomed to um, here in, in developed countries and what we find is increasingly develop, developing countries like China India, they are also very quickly adopting this model of, of food production.
0: Well, I open up this book, and as you talk about diversity of different breeds, I see pictures of chickens of all different sizes, shapes, and colors, Um, chickens with young people and older people, chickens with other chickens, and as you said, only a few breeds are being used in these CAFO operations. Now, the listeners of this podcast are quite familiar with issues of diversity loss in agricultural crops and heirloom vegetables, and also even uh, the reduction in biocultural diversity through the loss of languages. One thing we haven't talked about is the loss of diversity on the animal end. Of course, we can assume that that's going on, but I wonder if you could kind of flesh that out. How much diversity have we lost, um, and what do we need to do to um, reverse that process?
1: Um, i don 't remember the exact figures um, the United Nations put out a study about how tragic the loss of biodiversity was, but you know <clears throat> I think you have to look back in history um, you can go way back you know to the origins of of agriculture ten thousand years ago when you know those Those nomadic peoples, those people in villages in 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 forested areas along the coastlines, finally began to grow bigger settlements, and and there was this you know millennia-long process of local adaptation in which. You know wild animals were domesticated um, and and they occupied certain niches um, on the land and and um, crops were domesticated hundreds and hundreds of crops and and things were very climate specific and there was a real logic to how um, agriculture did develop, for example, you know the cows um, ate and, and and the the ruminants, sheep and goats, they converted fibrous plants that we humans couldn't into very valuable proteins and, and provided many, many services, not just meat, um, to agriculturalists. And the monogastrics, you know, um, the single-stomached um, creatures like like hogs and chickens, they were very omnivorous, and they also were able to process food wastes and all kinds of different, um, plants and plant material that we humans couldn't, again, into, into valuable proteins. Um, and, and there, (coughs) there was a, this real co-productive relationship of of agriculture. And this was happening, you know, in every region of the world. And, um, you know, and, and Resulted in this huge diversity of species, even even just within our country, and even with even just within you know um, a 400-year period of of colonization until the 20th century. Um, and what we find, though, in the 20th century is as we moved toward this industrialization of food production, and um, this highly so-called scientific approach and and really economically driven approach to food production, we found um, that that our food system changed considerably, and what we really lost was you know all those um, amazing products of local adaptation. Um, and, and the diversity of, of animals for many, many different reasons. You know, some animals were, were selected for beauty and some for traction and some because it wasn't that they just produced a lot of milk, but, they, but the males also served as really good meat or, or uh, you know, had really good muscle power or hides or, or many, many different uses. Um, and right now what we have... I I think, is this over-reliance on animals that produce massive amounts of one thing. You know, the, the ancient jungle fowl from which the modern chicken descended produced maybe 20 eggs in a year. Today's modern industrial chicken produces 300 eggs, but she's also kept in, in these, crammed in these cages with, with very little access to anything natural. Um, so much calcium is being sucked out of her poor little body. Her bones snap. Even if we, she were to be in a cage-free system, she'd be at peril because, you know, her, her bones are so frail and, and she's such, such a genetic freak to produce eggs that she couldn't really survive very well out in the natural world. And so, you know, what we, we've completely traded a natural life, a locally adapted life for, for increasingly for very, very few um, breeds of animals that, um, you know, are, that are just being stressed to the max because uh, of, of um, their prolific output. And, and some, on some levels, it's a huge success story. Um, certainly, from the farmer's perspective, though, a very few breeds that that prolif- pro- prolifically produce something is, is really bad for, for the marketplace in general. You know, the more that's produced, the lower the cost, the lower the price on the marketplace. And it's, it's definitely not good for the small farmer.
0: Well, the CAFO seems to have its tentacles everywhere. Uh, There's a photo in this book of a boat that is actually a CAFO. Um, And there are also discussions of seafood declining in in relationship to the existence of the CAFO. I wonder if you can talk about um, the interface between the oceans and the CAFO, and also uh, what does this tell us about uh, some of the patterns that we observe in the CAFO?
1: Well, this KFO model, you know, turn animal protein production into a factory-like assembly. It has, you know, they've they've tried to adapt it to every species that they can, including, um, you know, carnivorous fish such as salmon, and um, you know, you you have um, an aquaculture, an industrial aquaculture in many parts of the world. Um, which is really nothing more than a floating hog farm. You know, massive amounts of, of animals um, confined confined in these pens, um, really producing huge amounts of waste. Um, the conditions are so crammed and unnatural that um, often drugs are a huge part: antibiotics, um, kind, all, all different kinds of pesticides, and and other drugs to um, ward off diseases from confinement and huge amounts of waste you know and and other materials falling smothering the sea floor right where these operations are taking place um you know the The tragedy of the salmon right now is in many parts of the world it is just so inefficient you know these are these are fish eating fish, so you know. Basically, we're sucking the oceans um, for smaller fish um, to feed to these animals in confinement. And, um, you know, just like creating a pound of beef or a pound of pork, um, you know, it takes a a, a vast amount of energy of protein to make, um, um, you know, a unit of protein from farmed fish.
0: Well, in your book, it says, according to the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, the FAO, the livestock industry, accounts for 18% of the human-caused climate change effect. Daniel Imhoff, your comments.
1: Well, that's the FAO study. Um, It's been widely put out there. It's been widely challenged, both as being too high and too low. Um, You know, the, the fact is that there are 50, 60 billion livestock on the planet at any given time, you know, 10 10 or so animals per person on the planet, and they have huge impacts, um, and um, climate uh, and and, um, greenhouse gas emissions being one, as, you know, digestion is a huge part of um, an animal's life, and um, all animals, and um, they create methane and nitrous oxide and CO2. And um, you know, we we have uh, when you when you look at industrial animal agriculture from a climate perspective, you have to look at what went into producing the feed, um, what kind of habitat um, and land use impacts were there. What kind of transportation is involved in this this increasing system where the feed is very intensively produced and then it's transported to these huge concentrations of animals and then the animals are transported to be processed and they're refrigerated and packaged and shipped around and the waste is transported and shipped around. I mean, it, there, there are so many mind-boggling aspects to it. It's amazing that anyone can really come up with a number. Um, the facts are that there are huge numbers of, of animals, of food animals now on the planet. They are having huge impacts on our climate. And we're at a point where we really need to step back and say, what's the best way for animal agriculture to be integrated into our food system, and um, I think the CAFO is a 20th century model that, that has to run its course.
0: Well, I think that the CAFO is probably one of the best examples I can think of, of this euphemistic term, externalities. Can you explain this idea and this concept to our listeners, and how the CAFO is illustrative of this idea?
1: Yeah, you know, the best way that I've heard externalities described is organized irresponsibility. So basically, you know, the, the idea of the CAFO is um, it, it's almost like a, a mine, right? You're, you're just um, getting as much out of this area as possible. You're not really concerned about what's downstream from the mine or what's upstream from the mine, um, when, when you talk about externalities that would be things that are outside the economic purview of this operation that then society has to pay for. They're not, they're not included in the cost of the meat and they're not, they're, they're costs that really aren't borne by the owners of these operations. What, what would they be? Well, when you have, you know, 10,000 hogs in a very very small area they're producing huge volumes of waste um sometimes you know oftentimes these these operations are cited in areas that are prone to heavy rainfall annual flooding hurricanes and there's just t- way too much waste for the surrounding farmland to absorb and at some point or another the waste becomes fugitive. It ends up in, in the waterways. It ends up in wells. It volatilizes and it ends up in the atmosphere. And so the, 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 these CAFOs are externalizing the treatment of their waste. And, and certainly, you know, if you, if you live next to um, a paper mill or a dye plant, there would be a lot more Regulation, there would be a lot more scrutiny of the waste that were that are coming out of uh, of these operation uh, of the factory, um, and and the way the cafos have been able to really externalize this is by saying, but they're not factories, they're farms, they're 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 not in industries, they're their agriculture and therefore they shouldn't be subject to the same kind of scrutiny of of their waste um... another problem that you know that that is certainly being externalized is uh... one of the main costs of these operations is feed and you know these modern industrial breeds, they're, they're really no longer occupying those different niches that we talked about um, in the landscape as before, the cows grazing out on the grass, converting the fibrous plants that we humans can't eat into valuable proteins. Instead, they're being fed um, you know highly souped-up um, feed, much of it which is subsidized, um, by at taxpayer expense um, which comes to these operations that a, at a great um, at a great discount um, and we're talking um, hundreds of millions and billions of dollars per year that 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 allow these operations to um, purchase feed at, at, a, at a greatly discounted rate. Um, just those two, Things alone um, feed and and waste emissions. Th- th- they're not paying the full cost of that um, would potentially put these operations um, at great risk of of survival. Um, a, a final thing that I think everyone should be concerned about, and and it, and if you don't think that. CAFOs concern you personally because, you know, you're really conscious of your diet or, um, you know, you you, you feel like you've disconnected yourself from industrial ag. You have to realize, as you said, the tentacles are out there everywhere. Um, Antibiotic medicines, huge amounts of antibiotic medicines are are being used in these CAFO operations as a life support system for animals that are in such high concentrations, they're, they're exposed to huge amounts of, of waste and, and bacteria, and they're given um, small doses of antibiotics, not because they're sick, but as an immune booster, a growth promoter, and, and really allows them to survive these, these intensively concentrated conditions. Um, and but what we find is that uh, we're increasingly finding bacteria, other pathogens that are now resistant to those antibiotics, and they 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 escape the CAFO. They go out into the broader environment. They go out into the food system, and we may depend on the, the very antibiotics they're using in the CAFOs to protect ourselves from these now-resistant pathogens. Um, so um, what we would call the medical commons, the, the antibiotics that we all share as our own life support system in case you know of, of some uh, pandemic, uh, could potentially not be there for us when we need it. So essentially... The CAFO is in everyone's backyard, and, and, and these costs that are not um, being accounted for now, that are being externalized upon us now, will come back, and they, we will pay the price, and our children will pay the price.
0: Well, I want to explore this concept in more detail because I wonder if the CAFO is only an economic imperative or if the CAFO is actually not only within our backyards but within our minds. And one of the things that I have noticed lately and, and have been talking to people about is this tremendous disconnect that people have from our environment. And I think that part of that relates back to how in this country we are educated uh, in an education system where we are not taught how to calculate, uh, use mathematics to calculate how much water. Uh, a watershed might have flowing through it, or to learn how to identify when certain different types of fruit trees will be flowering and then fruiting, and what kinds of conditions will be beneficial to that, and what kinds of conditions will be not beneficial to it. Um, and I can just rattle off thousands of examples if I, if I would care to, but I think you get the point of what I'm trying to say. So I wonder if uh, how much education actually plays a role in this, not just in the reality of the KFO, but also in how we actually relate to and interact with our immediate environment.
1: Well, I, you know, uh, when when you turn over um, the ownership and the production and the responsibility of something um, so fundamental as food to a very very small number of corporations that really control the whole animal protein system you you do that at great peril and um, you know it's, it's illegal to take photographs of CAFOs in three states and in 13 states it's illegal to disparage um, agricultural operations the, these, these, these laws haven't been tested yet for their constitutionality but Certainly, um, Big Ag has been very preemptive in trying to um, keep to distance us from the realities of how food is is is, is actually grown. Um, you know, I I, <coughs> I can't say enough that really the the future of this whole issue, the future of food and food production, it, it is really going to be on the shoulders of the younger generation and and you can only hope that many of them are discovering that that very disconnection that you're talking about um, you know this lack of understanding of of where food comes from and how it's produced and a desire to actually close that gap um, is increasing and that we're going to find more and more people young people who not only want to know more about their food, but they actually want to become food producers themselves. The real challenge is that, you know, all, the whole system at present is completely stacked against them. And the CAFO system really, you know, it, it, you have to look at it almost like the way the government intentionally slaughtered 60 million bison, in the late eighteen hundreds you know it it was not to wipe out the buffalo um, and use the buffalo in the process you know for for all the things all the value that they had but it was really to colonize the West and make way you know and then soon it made way for cattle well in the in the you know latter part of the 20th century we really you know, we um, removed a, a way of life from our our farmlands throughout the country. We basically wiped out the small farmer. And and right now, what we have is this um, increasing struggle between um, a, an increasing number of people who see the value of locally produced, regionally produced. Foods that are really based on health, and we have a huge corporate agribusiness agri-food system that is really you know concerned with commodity and market control and price. That might not answer your question about that disconnect, but
0: well, I just wonder, um, I guess my next question then is, where are the rays of hope? And what is the game changer in this? I mean, what do you think that people can do right now, um, or perhaps a series of strategies that suit different yeah. personality types? I mean, what what are the game changers in this?
1: Well, you know, I guess you can you you can look at on a, a number of different levels. If if you looked at it, you know, um, from a legal standpoint. The amazing thing is that right now, there really aren't any laws at all that protect animals, farm animals, livestock, while they're being raised. None. Zero. You can pretty much do whatever you want to a farm animal while you're raising it. There's no law that's going to to come in there and say that, you know, you've... um, there's there's not a a federal animal welfare act. Um, There is a a, there are laws that govern transportation of animals and the slaughter of animals but they don't they don't cover um, birds they don't include um, chickens which are by far and away by numbers The biggest species that we produce right now. So, from a legal standpoint, there's a huge, huge far way to go. Um, Right now, there are some bills um, being considered uh, uh, um, governing antibiotics and the overuse of antibiotics in CAFOs. And one could see that, if anything, as a real Achilles heel to, to the industry. You know, if you take away their use of um indiscriminate use of antibiotics then you might get to a, an achilles heel in the whole system without those drugs you won't be able to confine so many people uh, so many animals in such um you know uh grim conditions um, so antibiotics is definitely one of those um game changers um you know uh, certainly if there was ever anything done to liberalize markets and take away um, these these mounting monopolies that very few companies um, hold over almost every sector of of the food system. Again, you, you might find um, that as a big game changer, um, and you could always have rays of hope that eventually the Farm Bill, um, you know, the big federal food and ag um, policy that we enact every five years could at some point really take a different tact from being heavily supportive of, you know, centralized, intensified CAFO-based feed and ag um, and, and getting, you know, back to more regionally based, locally based small family farmer friendly types of of food production so that's kind of the big policy level you know uh, my hope is really in the local and um, on the on the local level you know it could be anywhere from your your job to your school district to your local government to your household and your farmers market because Every day, you know, many of us three times a day, we can make choices about what we're going to eat and what we're not going to eat. And the more we know, um, the more we, we know our local farmers, and we know where our food comes from, and we are engaged ourselves in the 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 growing and the processing and the cooking and the preparing. Um, those can really be transformative interactions, um, and I think. You know, probably the best thing anyone can do at this point is to begin growing more of their own food because i I really feel that's a threshold once you go th- walk through that threshold. Um, you can't really go back you know you have some chickens in your backyard, you realize what it takes to keep them healthy to keep them safe, keep them happy, you taste the eggs that come from a well-cared-for chicken, and you realize, gosh, there's, there's nothing that the industrial food system can even touch taste-wise um, in food that's, that's just so fresh and well-cared for. Um, and you also realize, you know, what, what a responsibility is, too. So, um, you know, <laughs> a huge amount can be done on the local level. Um, yeah, I can stop there.
0: Well, I just want to ask in conclusion um, and briefly, how difficult was it, the actual human aspect of this book? I mean, you had many different contributors, and as you said, over 6,000 photos that you began with. Um, Can you just speak to that briefly?
1: Well, when I was done, um, the book, I took a four-month sabbatical, and I'd been working for many, many years and really looking forward to a sabbatical at some point and i went to music school uh... at the Berklee college of music in boston and i needed a psychic purge after dealing with all the mountain of um, of data and stats and gruesome images and really great writing i mean the book has has great writing it was just it was a huge project and it was a lot to put on your shoulders and and kind of carry around for a few years to get it to the finish line and um, so at the end there I really just took some time to get into a a very positive happy creative place and hopefully you know that wasn't too uh, indulgent of a reaction to to the task at hand
0: well I would not say that it was too indulgent a reaction and um, I know that I speak for myself and all the listeners of this podcast, when I tell you, Daniel Emhoff, thank you very much for this book, the mammoth effort that you and all of your collaborators put into it uh, to, raise people, uh, to raise people's awareness about this tragedy, uh, as you put it, of industrial animal factories. And also thank you for joining me here on the Innovations podcast today.
1: I really appreciate the chance to
0: talk. That concludes my interview with Daniel Emhoff. I'd like to thank him once again for participating in this episode of the podcast. This is the last episode of the Agro Innovations podcast for this year, 2010. We will, of course, continue to produce these shows for 2011, and uh, I hope that you will continue to tune in. I've gotten a lot of great mail from people who are listeners to the podcast in the past several weeks. And I'd like to thank you all for your encouraging words and um, I'd like to thank you for continuing to support the podcast by listening and by sharing the information and ideas that we share here with your family and friends and colleagues. I hope you all had a very good year in 2010. I hope you will have an even better year in 2011. A reminder that this and all episodes of the Agro Innovations Podcast are released under a Creative Commons attribution share like 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos.